Good morning, friends. Thank you so much for joining us for our online service at River Oaks today. We are really glad that you are up and joining us this Sunday morning. We uh, are continuing our series that we've called One Story. We're looking at the unity of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and the importance of every book of the Bible in contributing to God's great one story plan. Today we make a transition. Thus far this year, we've been looking at the Old Testament books of law and history, and today we begin what are commonly known as the books of poetry and wisdom, and we're starting with the book of Job. Now, the Old Testament books we've seen so far deal largely with the development and history of the nation of Israel and the giving of the law to them. Now, the wisdom we find in these books, Job, Psalms, and Proverbs, deal more broadly with questions that affect all people of all time, everywhere. The book of Job is a long book. It's made up of 42 chapters, and I'd like to begin by taking a, a big picture, broad look at the book of Job by talking about, first, the key figures, the key characters in the book. Of course, one of the figures is Job. We read in Job 1 and verse 1 that there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, when Scripture says that Job was blameless and upright, it does not mean that he had never sinned. Uh, these words are much like the words spoken of Noah in the book of Genesis, that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Uh, so Job, we could say, was a man blameless in his generation. Other key figures we're introduced to in the very beginning of the book are God, who's in a conversation with Satan. We read in Job chapter 1. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now, the phrase sons of God uh, I believe refers to angelic being, angels. Keep in mind that Satan is not God's equal opposite, although he is God's adversary. Satan was created as an angelic being far below God. And so when these angels are coming before God, Satan appears among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now what's going to happen at this point in the story is that Satan is going to afflict Job, destroying his home and possessions and even taking the lives of his children. Well, as Job begins to experience unbelievable degrees of suffering, Job has three friends who come to supposedly console and comfort him. We read, in, read this in Job chapter 2 and verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, 
Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment to come together to show him sympathy and comfort him. Now, as we read some of their words in a moment, you're going to see they did uh, far worse than showing sympathy and comforting him. They tended to point out his sin and the fact that he was suffering because of some sin. There's one other key figure who appears later in the book, and his name is Elihu. He's not one of these three friends. He's a young man. He shows up late in the book of Job, and he really rebukes the free three friends. And uh, we read this in Job 32, Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he had justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now, Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. When Elihu saw there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. So these are the key figures in the book of Job. Job, uh, his three friends, Elihu, and of course God and Satan at work. This is a long book of 42 chapters, as I mentioned, and much of the book consists of cycles of speech. Job speaks, one of his friends speaks. Job speaks again, one of his friends speaks. And one of the beautiful things about the book of Job is the, the uh, beautiful way that it's composed. The book of Job is a book of poetry, but Hebrew poetry in the book of Job is not poetry like we think of poetry. We think of words that rhyme. Uh, the boy had a shoe, its color was blue. But Hebrew parallelism is a type of poetic expression of which a statement is made, and then the next statement advances that thought, tells us a little more about it. For example, uh, God is the creator of all. The Lord is the maker of heaven and earth. That would be an example of the type of language we'll see in Job. And you'll see a lot of that as we read some of these speeches. The first speech is from Job himself. And Job has been afflicted terribly at this point. And his wife has said, why don't you just curse God and die? But Job will not curse God. Job opens his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. Job said, let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said, a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Next, Job's friend Eliphaz, the first of the three friends, comes, and note what he says to Job. Job, he didn't so much comfort him or console him with his words. Eliphaz says to Job, remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I've seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. In other words, Job, you reap what you sow. Next friend. Bildad, the Shuhite, in Job chapter 8, speaks up. How long will you say these things, he says to Job, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he's delivered them into the hand of their transgression. What a horrible thing to say. The man's children have been 
killed. To say something like that to him, unbelievable. What a friend. And then the friend Zophar comes, and he says this to Job, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you'll lift up your face without blemish, and you'll be secure and will not fear. You'll forget your misery. You'll remember it as waters that have passed away, and your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. Wow. Some words of comfort from his three friends. And then, much later in the book, we get to Job chapter 34, and this young man appears. His name is Elihu, and out of respect for Job and the elders, he has not spoken. He's, he's been listening to this, and he says this, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. Would that Job were tried to the end because he answers like a wicked man, for he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Elihu seems to want to defend God in light of these different speeches. And now we get closer to the end of the book, chapter 38, and God is going to speak. And when God speaks here, notice the beauty of the language. Notice the poetic flow when God begins revealing himself as creator, and he speaks of his creation of all things. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Imagine that for a moment. Can you imagine God doing this incredible work of creation and the stars singing together and the sons of God, the angels, shouting for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Do you see what God's doing? He is not answering questions about Job's suffering. He's revealing himself. He's showing his awesomeness, his creative power. Then in the very last chapter of the book of Job, Job chapter 42, the very conclusion, Job speaks. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That is a phenomenal verse to take hold of. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Here Job's repeating a question God has already asked him in chapter 38. So he's quoting God. Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I'll question you and you make it known to me. And notice these words now. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself in dust and ashes. Job has had a revelation of who God is, his majesty, his awesomeness, his might. And then God speaks. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you've not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job 
and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you. Notice how God speaks of Job. My servant Job shall pray for you. I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namiathite, went and did what the Lord had told him, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And notice this. This is the end of the book. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Well, what do we learn from this? What does the book of Job teach us? What does it teach us about suffering? Because the, the, the name Job is almost synonymous with suffering. What does it teach us? Number one, foremost, I think the book teaches us this, that the greatest outcome of a time of suffering is a greater knowledge of God, greater knowledge of who He is and what He's like. In God's presence, Questions seem to go away, and we are overcome with awe. Notice again what uh, Job said to, to God. Uh, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. He goes on to say, I'd heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself in dust and ashes. Friends, if we could get a vision of God and His glory and majesty and power, our first response would be and should be humility. It was this way with Isaiah, the great prophet in the book of Isaiah. When he got a vision of the glory of God, his first words were, woe is me. It was this way for the apostle Peter. When he began to get a revelation of who Jesus was, when Jesus had multiplied fish for Peter, he falls down and says, Lord, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. When we get a greater vision and knowledge of God, who He is, His majesty, the response is humility. Job's questions are not being answered, but Job's now, Job's now got a vision of God. The greatest outcome of a time of suffering is a greater knowledge of God. Number two, what does the book of Job teach us about suffering? We can learn to trust God even when we don't have all the answers. The book of Job in all its 42 chapters does not answer Job's questions about why he's suffering. It does not answer our questions about why we may suffer. But it teaches us that we can believe in God and trust Him even when we don't have those answers. This, I think, is the lesson of Job. And Job, in his struggle, in his questioning of God, in chapter 9, actually speaks prophetically. That is, Job speaks as a prophet. When he's uh, questioning God about his own sufferings, he says something that's remarkable and something that looks ahead to the New Testament. Job says this about God, for he's not a man, as I am, that I might answer him, that we should Come to trial together. There's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. An arbiter is a mediator, 
someone who settles disputes. And God, Job has begun to recognize that God is so much higher than I. I need a, somebody to stand between us, to, to arbitrate, to, to mediate. I think Job here is speaking prophetically of someone who would come as a mediator. And that someone was Jesus. We read this in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. Jesus was, is fully God. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus became fully man, 100% human. In so doing, he actually entered into our sufferings. He never sinned, but on the cross, he bore the weight of judgment, the judgment for our sin upon himself, <clears throat> thereby becoming our mediator, thereby bringing us to God, bringing us into relationship with God. So Job's plea, Job's cry for an arbiter, for a mediator, was answered in Jesus in Jesus, in the giving of his life on the cross, not only became our mediator, he also became our high priest. So today, we have someone representing us before God who has experienced the sufferings of this life on earth. We read in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 of Jesus in his role as our high priest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. When you're tempted, you can know that Jesus was tempted, yet he didn't sin. When you're suffering, you can know that Jesus suffered in far more than we did. He became our mediator. He became our savior. He, made our, he became our ransom and our redeemer. What does the book of Job teach us about suffering? The greatest outcome is a greater knowledge of God. We can learn to trust God and we don't have all the answers. And third, we are called to patience in suffering. I believe the name of Job is only mentioned one time in the pages of the entire New Testament, and that is in the New Testament book of James. James writes a lot about suffering. And in James chapter 5, James is writing about suffering. And the example we have in those who have gone before. And he's writing to Christians and says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We read about the Old Testament prophets. They were put to death. They were persecuted. They suffered. Behold, he says, we consider blessed those who remain steadfast or who persevere, who are patient. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now think about these words for a minute. Job, despite his many complaints in the book of Job, is being set forth as an example of steadfastness. He's an example for us. The word steadfastness here could also be rendered patience, perseverance. And what we see about Job is that we're to consider him because those who remain steadfast in their suffering for the Lord's sake are considered 
blessed. James went on to say, you've seen the outcome of this, that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. What does the book of Job teach us? Greatest outcome of a time of suffering is not answers to all our, getting answers to all our questions, but having a greater vision of God, greater grasp of who He is. We turn to His Word. We learn of who God is in our suffering. Secondly, we learn to trust Him when we don't have all our answers. And then thirdly, we're called to persevere, to patience, to steadfastness in such times. Do you know, friends, the, the suffering that we're experiencing now in our nation, and frankly, the suffering that is far worse in many other countries of the world, um, it's not new. It's a characteristic of humanity since the beginning. And there have been plagues, there have been pestilences, there have been epidemics and pandemics. I found it interesting this past week to read a couple of things that were written by Christians. One was written, one was a sermon written by Christians in uh, earlier times. One was a little pamphlet written by Martin Luther. Now, if you're not familiar with Martin Luther, he's the one whose name is synonymous with the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And in 1527, they were experiencing a recurrence of the bubonic plague, a terrible, terrible plague. And Luther uh, actually wrote originally a letter to his friend, Johann Hess, and he was dealing with a question that people were asking. Can you run away from a plague? That is, is it right for a Christian to, to leave town, go up to the mountains, get away from everybody else, and not help all these sick and dying people? That's the, the subject, uh, whether one may flee from a deadly plague. Interesting to read what they believed about plagues in the uh, little pamphlet himself. Luther writes, I'm of the opinion that all the epidemics, like any plague, are spread among the people by evil spirits who poison the air or exhale a pestilential breath which puts a deadly poison into the flesh. One of the big issues in their time was whether you could bury people within city limits because Luther writes, I do not know and do not claim to understand whether vapors and mists Arrive out of the, arise out of the graves to pollute the air. So it's best to locate graves outside of the city so they didn't have the kind of scientific knowledge we have. But here's the emphasis of Martin Luther's tract. He writes this, No one should dare leave his neighbor. And he's responding to his own question, whether one may flee from a deadly plague. No one should dare leave his neighbor unless there are others who will take care of the sick in their stead and nurse them. In such cases, we must respect the word of Christ. I was sick and you did not visit me, in Matthew's gospel. According to this passage, we're bound to each other in such a way that no one may forsake the other in his distress, but is obliged to assist and help him as he himself would like to be helped. He writes elsewhere in his very long letter that's now in pamphlet form. He writes, therefore, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then, I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance infect and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. 
If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me, and I've done what he has expected of me. And so I'm not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely as stated above. See, this is such a God-fearing faith because it's neither brash nor foolhardy, nor does it tempt God. 1527. Now, one more instance from church history. 1918, the Spanish flu epidemic. Uh, This nation suffered terribly. And there was a sermon preached on November 3rd, 1918, by Dr. Francis J. Grimke, pastor of 15th Street Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. Francis Grimke was actually the son of a slave. His mother had been a slave. He was born in 1850. His mother had married the slave owner. They had other children, a couple of siblings involved in the work of abolition. Francis Grimke went on to uh, study at Princeton, got a doctor of divinity, a brilliant man, and for six decades served at 15th Street Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. He served during the time of the Spanish flu. Let me just read to you from his sermon, a sermon he preached on November 3rd, 1918. He says, we know now, perhaps as we've never known before, the meaning of the terms pestilence, plague, epidemic, since we've been passing through this terrible scourge of Spanish influenza with its normal death rate and consequent wretchedness. Every part of the land has felt its touch. Over the whole land, it's thrown a gloom and has stricken down such large numbers that it's been difficult to care for them properly, overcrowding all our hospitals. And it's proven fatal in so many cases that it's been difficult at times to get coffins enough in which to place the dead and men enough to dig the graves fast enough in which to bury them. Our own beautiful city, Washington, D.C., it was where he was, suffering terribly from it as a precautionary measure uh, to close the schools, theaters, churches, and forbid all public gathering within doors as well as out of doors. He notes elsewhere, and this I thought was interesting, there has been considerable, considerable grumbling, I know, on the part of some in regard to the closing of the churches. Now, Grimke in his sermon, while Luther was focused on love of neighbor, serving others, Grimke is focused on how the Spanish flu brought to light with all the people dying the importance of eternity. And he called people with a strong gospel call in the midst of this epidemic to faith in Jesus Christ. And he addresses those who are not Christians in his sermon And he says, you who are not Christians, who've not repented of your sins, who've not surrendered yourselves to the guidance of Jesus Christ, he says, don't ignore these repeated warnings, that is, with all these people dying around them. If you do, you'll have no one to blame but yourselves. It won't be God's fault if you are lost, if eternity finds you unprepared. God has opened the way for your salvation through the gift of his only begotten son who died so that you might have the opportunity of making your peace with God. And then he calls believers Christians. And he says, in the presence of such a faith, that is faith in Jesus Christ, in the realization of God's love as revealed in Jesus Christ, in the consciousness of fellowship with him, what are epidemics? What are scourges? 
What are all of life's trials, sufferings, disappointments? They only tend to work out for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And then he says this to Christians. It's a good time for those of us who are Christians to examine ourselves and see exactly how it is with us. Whether the foundation upon which we are building, that is building our lives, is a rock foundation. Whether our faith is really resting upon Christ, the solid rock. And I still feel that one important function of this epidemic will be lost if it fails to have that effect upon us. If it does not lead us to carefully, to careful heart searching on our part. These things have been before, and in some cases to a far more serious degree. And so in closing, I'd like to just raise this question by way of our own application. How should you and I respond? How should we respond in this present time of suffering in 2020? And I know that some of you would say, well, I'm not suffering terribly. It's just kind of been a disruption of schedule. Others I know are suffering badly. You've lost uh, jobs, had a loss of income business owners have had to let people go and challenging times for many how should we respond in this present time of suffering first of all remember jesus christ as dr pastor francis grimke called us to do and remember the words of job in the passage that my wife read just before the sermon this morning from job 19 there are prophetic words spoken by Job. They're beautiful words. Job says this, recorded in Job 19, 25, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, at the end, he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. See, Job is professing because of his Redeemer a belief in eternal life, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another, my heart faints within me. Now, how could Job have known God as his Redeemer? I think Job is speaking, inspired by the Holy Spirit, these words that point to our Redeemer Jesus, the one of whom the Apostle Paul wrote, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. Job was pointing us to the one-story plan of God, the Redeemer, Jesus, who would come, who would live among us, who would suffer among us, who would purchase our redemption on the cross and provide eternity with him so that we could say with Job, after my flesh has been destroyed, I will see God. I'll be in his presence. Knowing Jesus doesn't mean an end to all suffering in this life. Jesus himself said, in this world you'll have tribulation it does promise, however, the eternal presence of God with us, even in this life, His presence, His love, His grace with us in everything we experience, in everything we go through, so that right now, in the midst of what's happening, you and I can grow to know Him better, to love Him more, because He's walking through it with us. Remember Jesus and what He's done. Number two, remember Jesus' mandate. We all know we're living in a time of incredible division and dissension in our nation. I'd like to call those of us who are believers 
back to Jesus, very clear, very strong, very simple mandate found in John chapter 13, said to his followers, a new command but I give to you that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you love one another. When we're suffering, when we're under immense stress, as, as I know many of you are, some of you have got young kids at home, you're trying to teach and keep them corralled as you're trying to work at the same time. Incredible times of stress. I know that's true. It becomes harder to love. But what Jesus gave us here is not a great suggestion. He didn't say, I suggest you love one another. The church will grow a whole lot faster as you do. This is a mandate. Friends, love for one another is a quality of Christians that is to be a witness to the world. And obedience to this command right now in our lives, in our time, is something the world around us desperately, desperately needs to see from the people of God. We're the ones who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within, and the Apostle Paul said the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God into our hearts. Remember Jesus and what he's done. Remember his great mandate. And then thirdly, remember God's purpose in this time. Romans chapter 8 is one of my favorite chapters of the Bible, and it deals with God's presence with us in times of suffering. In verse 18, Paul the Apostle writes, I consider the sufferings of this present world not even worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed. And he ends the chapter by talking about the fact that no one can separate us from the love of Christ. But right in the middle of that final section, he says, he writes these incredible words. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Conformed formed or shaped according to the likeness of Jesus in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. These verses, I think, are telling us that in, and, and they are, again, in the context of teaching about God's presence with us on suffering, they're teaching us that when we go through our worst times of suffering, we have an opportunity to be <clears throat> more fully shaped into the likeness of Jesus conform to his likeness, and that this is God's plan, something he's predestined us for, to become more like Jesus, more like Christ. So the question we should ask ourselves in this season is, am I becoming more like Jesus in, in this time, in this season? Am I remembering what he's done for me and fulfilling his mandate and being shaped to become more like him? This is God's purpose. This is God's plan. It's not the suffering that shapes us. Suffering does not shape us. A lot of people go through suffering and they never profit spiritually by it. It's God who shapes us. But for those who know and love and seek him, even in their times of suffering, they can be shaped more fully to the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. So in conclusion, friends, I would say this about our present time of suffering. Let's not just endure it. Let's find it a time of great, great, great spiritual growth. Don't just go through it, but grow through it. Grow to know him better, to love him more. 
Let his spirit work in you to shake him, shape you more fully into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Let's pray about that now. Father, we come to you in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. I pray for the Holy Spirit to bring encouragement to your people, those watching today, that you would speak to them, that you'd call them to closeness, that you'd call us each to a greater grasp of what you've done for us in the gospel of Jesus, that you would so fill us with your spirit that, Lord Jesus, we'd fulfill your love mandate, and that you, Lord, would be conforming us to the image and likeness of our Savior. And Lord, for any listening who've not yet embraced the salvation provided by Jesus on the cross, would you bring that person right in this moment to call upon your name, to acknowledge their sins, and by faith receive your salvation? And we ask this in your great name, Lord. Amen.